Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Welcome back to the Policy Biz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode of the show, we explore the interaction between data, data visualization, and hockey. I am joined by the creator behind the website hockeyviz.net, Micah McCurdy, who pulls in real-time NHL data to create a variety of exciting data visualizations and data tools around hockey data. We have a really exciting conversation about the tools that he uses to collect the data, to clean the data, and of course, to visualize the data. We also talk a lot about the balance between static visualizations and interactive visualizations and why he focuses his attention on static visualizations. And then of course, we talk about Connor McDavid, the current playoffs picture, and what he thinks is gonna happen to a couple of teams in the next couple of years. So I hope you'll enjoy this interesting episode on the intersection between data and data viz and hockey. And so here's my conversation with Micah McCurdy. Hey, Micah, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, Very excited. We are in early May when we're recording. So the second round of the playoffs, just getting started. Very exciting. I mean, less exciting for me because the Caps didn't quite have the the season that we had expected, even after a great December, um, kind of fell apart after that. Um, but I'm I, I want to get to your your predictions and uh, some other things about the playoffs in a little bit. But I wanted to start with uh, maybe having you talk a little bit about yourself and how you got into this intersection of hockey data, data fizz, and have this pretty exciting site where you like have this interesting Venn diagram going on. So uh, I was I'm from Halifax, which is where I live now. Um, but I did not stay here my whole life by any means. Um, I grew up here and, and I was sort of a casual hockey fan. Like a lot of Canadians are, you know, it's in the water. You don't need to, you don't need to seek it out or do anything. It's just there. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so I was a sort of casual Senators fan, but I watched a number of other teams too when I was a kid. And then I went to Australia to do my doctorate in mathematics. And I was at the time, I was completely sure I was going to be a research mathematician. That was my career. And I discovered when I went to Australia that all of a sudden there was no more hockey Mm. and, and their sports mad, of course, but, but ice hockey, as they insist on calling it to my incredible annoyance (laughs) is is not, it it was just starting to get on the like, we're going to fill a channel with some reruns in the middle of the night because it's live in Canada or the States kind of thing. Yeah. And I discovered that I was really homesick on the other side of the world, trying to do my PhD. And simultaneous to that, I was struggling with doing purely pure mathematics without doing any kind of hands-on anything. Mm. And so I got, I got more and more into hockey, especially because I could watch it while I worked and when I wanted a distraction to do some different kind of work, I could run little simulations. Right. Say like, well, let's make a model of what are the senators going to do on this California road trip? How many points are they going to take? Well, the Kings are really good this year and the Sharks are really bad. Well, okay, how does that mean? And, and you get into that and where you're going to do it, I might as well do it for all 30 teams. 
and then you get you get into 32 now, of course. And, and so that scratched an itch, both in terms of homesickness and in terms of wanting to do some quantitative work. People always laugh when I tell them that my, my mathematics PhD contained essentially no quantitative work because it's all, <laughs> yeah. the, but it's true. It's, it's almost Theory. entirely. Well, and, and then of course the, the material of the PhD is something that by definition, almost no one else cares about, but <laughs> right. it, happened yeah. to, it happened to have this kind of, peculiar consonants. Namely, I was working on graphical languages, so doing calculations with pictures. Mm. So not illustrating the calculations, but actually being the calculations, a two-dimensional string diagram calculus. You could actually work with ribbons. And, and so it sounds very abstract, and it was. Um, but the, the essence of it was doing things visually instead of doing things with, with symbols. Right. And so, so then later, Years later, when I decided to turn the hobby that I that I picked up in Australia into a job, so almost a decade later, it was very easy to to think of it not as an exercise in hockey or statistics, but as an exercise in data visualization. Mm -hmm. Because I I find that looking at things, seeing pictures of things activates a, a totally different part of my brain than trying to process things symbolically. Right. And so that's where the two threads, where the the math thread and the hockey thread kind of overlapped and became this entirely different thing centered around data viz. Right. It's interesting when you, you tell that story because it sounds like you started not by just doing kind of in-depth, deeper dives of, of just tabulations and cross tabs, but actually doing predictions. Yeah, I started with predictions. And, yeah. then, and that was because I wanted to make simulations. Mm -hmm. And so, so it was kind of the wrong way around, if you like, you know, if you're doing science, you think about here's the thing I really want to understand. And then, and, and I had done a little bit of that in my undergrad, I did a little bit of simulation work, I published a paper on bubble physics, and where you're looking at, at soap froth squeezed between two glass plates, and I was simulating what they would look like with a computer. And that's a, a really interesting scientific technique. But there, of course, the interest is here's this thing. And I, you know, I can attack it experimentally, I can attack it theoretically, or you can attack it in the middle. And mm -hmm. I discovered I really enjoyed that approach. And so that became my focus. You know, how can I find another project using those tools? I just enjoy using them. Right. And, and hockey was sort of naturally close to hand. And then afterwards, I thought, I don't really know what I'm doing. I should look at the data better. <laughs> Am I doing this right? And so in the very first instance, DataViz was a debugging tool for that. Mm. I thought, you know, if I look at the data, then I'll be able to see if it's good because I process information very well that way relative to just looking at numerical output. Right. And so I had this little gadget and I think it kind of works all right, but it, but it became, you know, this need to make diagnostics to understand what it was that I was doing led to this focus on data viz. Right. So let's, let's talk about the, the data viz piece of it. So um, I'm curious about your process. So you're pulling in a lot of data and for folks who haven't checked out the site HockeyViz. Um, I'll leave links to it and you should absolutely should. You've got a ton of data and a ton of visualizations. So what is your process? Where are you pulling data from? What is your toolkit to uh, process the data? And then what are you doing on the visualization side? And I want to dig in a little bit deeper on the, on the visualization side uh, as well. But what does that whole like data workflow for you look like? So for NHL data specifically, uh, it's actually an enormous pain in the neck. Mm. Um, the I shouldn't be too upset about it. The league, after all, puts it out for free. Uh, right. And they know that I use it and, and rearrange it and, and sell it on my website. 
and they don't get too angry with me. But, <laughs> uh, but it's definitely not presented in a way that is straightforward in any way. Yeah. Uh, and so the data engineering aspect of it is uh, a real pain. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it is just scraping HTML. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's some pretty detailed HTML reports that are put out after every game by the league. In fact, um, during each game, they update every few minutes. And so you can even do a, some rudimentary live stuff. And then there are some machine-readable JSON endpoints that are not particularly sophisticated when the two data sources don't quite line up, even though they both allegedly come from the league. And so you have to do quite a bit of chicanery to, to make them line up. Uh, in the old days, people used to know about even more data that used to leak out through um, league partners of one kind or another. Mm. Uh, there was a time when the ESPN website could be relied upon for some information that you couldn't get from the league, which is no longer true. <laughs> yeah. but, but there's a lot of tricks along those lines where, where you, have to, you, know, you have to do quite a bit more than just take in an endpoint and, and store it locally. You've got to yeah. do, the scraper in particular is one of those things where that's a, a piece of software that's carefully honed with lots of different if-thens for silly circumstances. Right, for a whole bunch of end cases or edge cases that just pop up. Yeah, and, and there's, yeah. You know, there's, there's not just the usual data where, you know, well, this data happens to be corrupt for reasons that are known possibly to no one. But then there's also all kinds of weird things like, you know, Rich Peverly had a heart attack in a game and uh, after he yeah. scored and then they restarted that game. And so they credited him with the goal before the opening faceoff. <laughs> and, and he also didn't play. He got hurt. Right. Uh, and then, sorry, it's, it's not Peverly who scored. Some other guy scored and he got hurt. Wow. And, uh, and so then he didn't get to play in the replay. And so, you know, you make assumptions like, do you assume that all the goal scorers in the game dressed in that game and, and you get it wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of data engineering along those lines. Um, and what are you, well. and what are you doing on the, what's the tool you use to do the actual scraping? Oh, beautiful soup. It's all, my stack is all Python. All Python. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're pulling it in. And so you're pulling it directly from the NHL API. Um, and you're not using like hockey reference because those are more, those seem, hockey reference seems a little more aggregated as far as I can tell. That's right. I don't have any partnerships uh, with any other hockey websites. Okay. Um, and, and I'm also sort of neurotic on this level where if there are mistakes, I want to at least be able to say that's my mistake or mm -hmm. that's the NHL's mistake. Right. You know, that's because what I'm doing is, is not just for my own benefit, but it's public facing. The, I find it's easier to say, you know, this is exactly who made a mistake here. Yeah, yeah. So you can you so you control the entire workflow from from A to Z. Yeah. Yeah, and I also don't step on anybody else's toes except mm -hmm. possibly itself. Right. And, right. And so hobbyists, you know, there, there's a certain amount of competition among people, but but also a certain amount of professional respect for anybody else who's working with NHL data. Where you say, you know, like now and again, you say, I have corrupt stuff from here, and the league hasn't fixed it. Do you have? a copy that wasn't corrupt, you know, and you share things among practitioners. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. So there is sort of a behind the scenes kind of community of, in this case, the hockey data folks. Yeah, there's, it's probably about like a 10 or 12 people that I can think of that I consider yeah. in community. Yeah. In fact, it's large enough to have sort of its own little petty squabbles with people who don't like one another. And, mm -hmm. and, and of course, everybody <laughs> privately thinks that their way is best and their, their way is, best. is best and their models are best and their, you know, my data pipeline is definitely not the best. Um, and so it can be occasionally a little bit testy, but mostly people, you know, who have actually done a, a modicum of work and know what it's like, um, are, are quite friendly with one another and happy right. to help them. Right. They all know. They all know the the challenges and the in these weird edge cases. Um, yeah. 
So you've pulled the data in uh, Python, you've cleaned it in Python. So what about the data viz side? And maybe you could talk a little bit about your, I don't know, do you have like, I mean, I, I obviously follow your stuff and you've got a lot of different types of, of visuals, but do you have a few that you kind of market or, or share as like the kind of exemplar stuff of your work? There, there is one for sure. In fact, I reworked it just this year. Um, it's a Sankey diagram, which shows the probabilities of each team as they move through the playoff round. Yeah, yeah, I just, um, I just saw the, the updated one uh, yesterday, yeah. And, and so this one, in fact, I, I found a, a great blog post by a man whose name I forget, sadly, um, explaining how he had really admired Sankeys that were made um, with circle segments and straight lines. So with no, so with only horizontal and vertical lines relative to some axis, and then circle segments when you needed to turn. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and so I reworked mine, which had been based on uh, lines with very different angles, which of course have this um, this optical illusion where thick lines can appear thin when they're very steep. Right. And uh, which I finally started to really annoy me. Uh, and so I decided <laughs> to rework it this way. And and speaking of text stacks, that that one graph that I show people all the time, um, it used to be called in its old incarnation, fans of mine decided to call it the rainbow death crab. Because <laughs> it had a sort of crab-like shape. Um, and it was full, full of many multicolors. And the, the death or skull emoji that people used has to do with how hockey fans, even the ones who love it, in fact, especially the ones who love it best of all, find the playoffs extremely stressful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I briefly sold some T-shirts. Technically, you can still buy them, but nobody has in a long time that say, we may win, but I may die. <laughs> and, the, and that, so that I sort of leaned into that with the, with the name of the thing. And that, yeah. that graph is the only one that I make... Um, with a Python library called SVG Ray, where I, mm -hmm. it, it's just a fairly gentle layer on top of plain SVG. Um, and so in fact, in a, in a past life, in a totally different application, I used to write a lot of XML and XSLT stuff. And so I find that quite natural mm -hmm. um, because I really wanted pinpoint control of actually making every single element. Um, but that's a little bit unusual. Almost all of the other stuff I do is all Matplotlib. Okay. Which, uh, which I've got reasonably good at, at bending to my will. Um, and in fact, I've avoided, from time to time, people say, oh, Micah, you know, you should do, you should try this other tool or you should try this other library. And, and I nearly never do um, mm -hmm. because I'm uh, persnickety about having a lot of pinpoint control and I don't mind spending a great deal of time to get it to look exactly the way I want. Mm -hmm. And so the process can be quite laborious in places and, uh, and quite intricate. But, but it generally does come out exactly the way I want it once it's done. And you're doing all that in code? Like, do you pull any of it into as an SVG and pull it into another tool to add annotations or do any manual stuff? Or is it all, not, I mean, obviously not automated, but is it all done in code? It is entirely done in code, which I take as a, as a kind of article of faith. Yeah, um, yeah. If I was interested, like every now and again, you come up with something and you say, oh, I see that's, you know, that's a case I didn't quite expect and doesn't look quite as elegant. You know, I could hand tweak that. And if I was, I don't know, like if you commissioned me to do something for National Geographic or something, yeah, you know, then maybe I would. I would I would tweak it and make sure that it was absolutely ideal. But I, right. I consider that as a rule, not to not as a virtue, but as a, a distraction from thinking at the right level of generality. Mm -hmm. Where this is sort of the where the pure math background comes back out, where where I think that solving the problem means solving the problem in general. Yeah. And so, which means it has to be done in code without right. hand tweaking after the fact, even if that means that sometimes you have to put out something which is 
you know, a pixel off from what it might be. Mm -hmm. Right. So during an evening, uh, we've got playoffs now, so there's only, you know, two or three games a night, but during the regular season, multiple games going on, are you constantly updating or, or do you have it running at a particular cadence? Like how, how, how is the updating process working? And also how does it update through to the website so that when I log on, I can go grab, you know, last night's or yesterday's shot diagram for, for the caps. That is all automated. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally stuff goes wrong and I have to um, go fix it. I mean, there's always a certain amount of putting your finger in the hole in the dike, yeah. but uh, but almost all of that is automated. I have a, a web server running on a server that I rent from a company in Toronto. And, uh, and so that's all um, stashed there. Right, right. Um, the other thing that's interesting about um, the site, so for folks who haven't logged in, they should and check it out because you get into the page and there are, I don't know, probably on the, on the front main page, there's probably like 16, 20 graphs, something like that. And I'd say maybe two of them are animated and the rest are static. Um, I don't think there's a lot of interactive stuff on the site. What is your thought process about interactive versus static? The few interactive is that I've made, they're very, uh, I don't know, two or three, I think, Yeah. compared to compared to thousands of other types. Right. Uh, and I consider the interactive ones to be failures on my part, where, mm. where I think of data viz in a genre sense as being akin to photography. And so if you make photography that moves, in some sense, you have failed to understand what you're doing. Mm -hmm. like, like I consider the, the, the process where you take something and you say, this is what goes in the rectangle. This is what it is I want people to look at. Then if you make something interactive, in some sense, failure might not be the word. Abdication might be the word. You've, mm. you've declined to solve the problem. Right. You leave it to your, to your readers to solve the problem. And there's an obvious virtue there, which is that agency brings something, but also an obvious vice where, where you haven't done the work, the editorial work that requires, mm -hmm. where one of the things that people are looking for, and this is something that I think is a real virtue of having something static, is that it gives a certain kind of finality where you mm -hmm. can say that, that even if there's something else you want to see, there is something that you can see here and I have shown all of it to you. Mm. Where, where you'd say that implicitly, just in the static choice, well before you actually look at the data. And then of course, every now and again, people say, you know, they disagree with you. And sometimes they will yell at you on Twitter and say, yeah. you know, this visit shows this and it ought to show that. And I say, well, it doesn't because it's not for that, it's for this, the first thing I chose. And yeah. then, then you can get into an argument about choices. Why did you choose to show this? And those arguments are always interesting to me, mm -hmm. especially because I do a lot of that work. In fact, I consider that to be, in some sense, the most interesting work, much more interesting than the color choices, the composition choices. They're like, what is it do you want to show here? Right. And, and I find that restricting myself to static viz, with, again, a few exceptions, crystallizes that process in my own mind and by the time i'm by the time i'm done i feel like i've gained a lot by knowing exactly what it is i want to show i agree with that i think 90 percent of that but in your particular case of of this rich hockey data for example if, if i wanted to go in and i could see the shot map for the caps last game 
Uh, I'm just going to focus on the caps, even though we're done. I'm just, I'll just, you know, <laughs> well, we don't have to talk about the senators. <laughs> um, if I want to look at that shot map, but then filter by Ovechkin versus Oshie versus Carlson. Now on your side, I, I believe you can select the different maps for each of the different shooters. But do you think there is value in having an interactive version of that overall static where I could filter and click inside the visualization? So no matter where you decide to draw a line, you say, this is, this is what I'm going to call static. And of course, every interactive mm. has, has that inside it, right? Mm -hmm. unless, the, unless the pieces move when you're not touching them. Right. There's, there's, right. there's always a static render, right? Where, the, yep. where you take your finger off the slider and you look at the, whatever it is that you as, the, as a user together with the author of the Viz has created. Yep. And so there's, no matter where you sit on this spectrum, you're going to have a certain amount of staticness. And you're going to have a certain amount of interactivity because no one is going to look at any particular thing for longer than they need to. You know, someone and, and a, a good viz, as always, of any type, you look at it, you see something interesting, you think, oh, I wonder about, and now you're, you're doing the interactivity in your head now. Right? Yeah. You're thinking about a new question. And right. of course, I'm running a web server, which means that, that there's something inherently interactive at the level of the web server. Mm -hmm where you're going to click on a link, you're going to click on something else. Like I, there's links all over the website, which is right. nothing if not interactivity. Yeah. And so the question becomes, where do you put the interactivity? You know, even if you're being incredibly mm -hmm. old school and you're going to have a book of maps, your map doesn't move when you look at it, but then you think, oh, I wonder if that's the same in this other country. And you turn the page to the other country, right? You, you interact with, yep. with the gadget, which contains the static fizz. Yeah. And so that, so I've, I've become quite comfortable with that for letting the interactivity be at the level of the web server, especially because it builds on, on a lot of existing technologies. Right. My, my interest technologically is quite minimal. I, like, mm -hmm. I appreciate very much that other people have made any number of tools, mm -hmm. um, but I... I don't have a particular interest in the technology as such. And so I prefer to use the simpler technologies whenever I can. Right. And for me, there's another angle too, a more um, craven angle, if you will, which is that, that my, in terms of getting customers, in terms of getting engagement, in terms of, of forming a community, to put it in a slightly nicer light, um, it's valuable to me that all my work be shareable. Mm -hmm. And so, so one of the things about having, you know, just... PNG outputs for stuff for almost yeah. everything is that other people or more to the point, me can click on something, paste it into a tweet, right. put some sort of comment topic, you know, linking it topically to whatever's going on in whatever conversation, in whatever sphere. And then people can digest it right away. And you don't have to, I mean, of course you can take screenshots of stuff too, but, but there's yeah. something about something This is going back to what we were talking about earlier, something about the presentation of the thing as static. Yes. If you take a screenshot of something that's interactive, even if it's your own thing, even if it's curated as carefully as you like, there's there's something not quite final about it that that encourages or permits your readers to look at it as a little bit more transient. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. But if you've written something, even if you've written something in codes, you know, it's, it's generating this for Ovechkin, it's generating that for Kuznetsov, it's generating this for all the players, you know, even if you haven't gone over them one by one with a little hammer to say, you know, this is exactly the way I want it. It still has that finished quality that comes across in the grain of the material, if you like. It, mm -hmm. it feels a slightly abstract to say that, but, you know, about a, a 
what's just a set of pixels like any other pixels. Um, but you still get that like, oh, this feels like this, this feels like that, where if you made the table out of wood, it's different than if you made it out of metal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right in a lot of levels. I, I appreciate your point about what is the level of interactivity? Is it two separate images that are layered? Is it a click? Is it a filter? But but it all, is all, it is a movie at the end of the day, right? It's a set of static images stitched together. I wanted to, to get into some more data questions, but but go ahead. I don't know if you had another thing to well, add about there, the, the, yeah. Well, I did one thing, just using the word movie really made me think about it. There's a third angle too about interactivity versus staticness that I really like specifically for data is about sports mm -hmm. because the sport itself is never pictures. The sport itself is always moving. It's extremely mm -hmm. interactive. It's, yeah. it's unavoidably happening through time. The space is, in fact, the time also, but the space is very deliberately constrained. You know, every sport has its court that you play in, not out of, and, mm -hmm. and also fairly tight times. But the time element is precisely the is the one which is difficult to deal with. And yeah. the space element you deal with in a pretty straightforward way. You take it is just a matter of scale for every sport. You know, you want to mm -hmm. make a picture of the rink, you do. And the pictures that I put out are, you know, five inches high. Right. Just that much precise, you know, you could write it down exactly how much smaller it is than a regular rink. It's just compression in space and it's it's self-similar. Mm -hmm. You know, you try to keep the proportions the same, mark the rink in your viz the same way or mostly the same way that you mark it on the ice and for the same reason so that people know where they are. Yeah. But the compression in time is really fundamentally different. Where hockey game story lasts an hour and a bit of game time, two or three yeah. hours of real life time. But the viz does not last in time. Mm. Right? It's it's compressed. And that compression I think is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of what it is, I think, that the creator has to do, where, in fact, frequently you're compressing not just a single game, you're compressing entire seasons, maybe entire careers, maybe multiple careers so that you can put them together in space. And that, to me, is the really fundamental aspect of what DataViz is at all, and it really comes through strongly when you're doing sports stuff, is to take variation in time and turn it into variation in space instead. Right. And so if you say, well, we'll just let the user click through this, you know, you're not doing all of that compression in time, which I think is, is the sort of first part of the job description. Right. Right. You are giving them a snapshot of right. two hours of their, of their life. And, and it's not just like, you don't want to, this is part of why people say, oh, you know, you should just watch the games where you get all this pushback from, from typical people, because yeah. of course they are putting in that time. Right. The, and and, and a lot of the pushback you get about, you know, having control or having power over the sport is because of you're getting pushback from people who are investing their entire yep. lives. Yeah. And right there you have, and of course, in my own way, I'm investing my entire life. I mean, this is my like professional career in its right. own way, right. uh, but, but it's not the same level. And it's in particular, you know, you get that extra level when players, ex-players, especially, you know, can be a little bit twitchy about this as well, because they've invested a lot, not just the playing time, in addition to, you know, the watching time that somebody might, but also the physical pain, the trouble, right. the exercise, the physical attributes, et cetera. Yeah. You know, and so that, but I think like, so far from trying to fight anybody who criticizes you in those terms, I think you have to accentuate the differences and say, yeah. we are not replaying this game. You know, right. if you want to watch the game, you can watch the game. We yeah. are absolutely... And you hear that I'm using the sort of royal mathematical we, right? The author and the reader together. Together, we are, yeah. com we are compressing the game. 
And that's, that's deliberate because I am showing you in a specific restricted context what matters and I am taking out what doesn't matter. Right. And that requires a, a knowledge about the subject matter. And this is true for every, for every viz, right? It's not just for sports. It just happens to be more vivid for sports because you have this dichotomy of who currently has a lot of power and who is gaining power at their expense. But that, that aspect of we are condensing this, these things are being removed and these things remain and the process is completed, mm -hmm. I think is really important to not shy away from. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to think about, I mean, it is in, in a lot of ways, real-time data, right? I mean, it's not stock market data, but it is real-time data and try to collapse that down. And it is always something that bothers me when I am stressed out watching my 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 team playing someone who's not in the sport says, oh, don't worry about it. It's like, no, I've, in, I've invested my time and my energy. You just don't understand. No, I, um, I intend to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, uh, as we've been talking, um, I originally reached out to you because I was going through some of your shot visualizations. So for folks who haven't seen these, these are uh, more or less heat maps of where a team or a player shoots on the ice. And um, and I reached out because I was curious about having just data that's just where players are on the ice, because I have a, a hypothesis. I'll just do this quickly, but I do have a question coming. I have a hypothesis that there's a lot of play happening on the, on the side of the ice that's opposite from the benches. And so there's a lot of play that we don't see because the cameras tend to face the benches. And so that was why I reached out and, and you were telling me that the data kind of doesn't really exist. And so I'm curious, what data doesn't exist that you wish you had? Well, that, that data in particular that you mentioned is in this most maddening middle ground where it does exist, I just don't get to have it. Ah, okay. The, and, and even that, of course, is reasonably new. Uh, if you asked the same question a few years ago, then, then it simply doesn't exist at all. Mm -hmm. and, and so, but player and puck tracking data has been available internally to teams for a couple of years now. Okay, I see. And, yeah. uh, well, and, and I, I happen to know just because of, of some connections with the industry that, that some teams are dealing with it quite well and some teams are, are struggling mm. because the, the data, you know, in fact, every now and again, I, I certainly get, my eyes full of stars when I think about what I could do with it, but it would be, <laughs> yeah. you know, among other things, I would have to take out some sort of loans and get a hold of a team of people. And, and it's one thing to do everything yourself. And already it's, it's all I can do for a full-time job to actually yeah. make what I'm already making, even though it's essentially all automated. Yeah. But that kind of granularity of that kind of data where every player and the puck is on the ice, you know, with whatever, however many times a second resolution you're looking at, you know, all of a sudden you don't just need a rented computer and a half decent command of Python. You need a team of right. professionals. Yeah. And, and not all hockey teams do. Mm. Uh, in fact, many, even professional teams are run on what look like shoestring budgets once you take mm. out player salaries. And, and so there'll be some movement from that as, you know, over the next bunch of years, but it's going to be quite slow because that kind of data hasn't been broadly used in the space. Right. I mean, it's interesting. Do you, do you think hockey in general, in terms of the analytics is behind other major, we'll just stick to North American sports like baseball and football. It's, it's behind all four of the, yeah. it's the fourth of the big four. Yeah. Um, and, and arguably also behind um, how things are going in soccer. Mm. Uh, although soccer has its own, um, 
history with a lot of important established people who don't like data-driven approaches. Right, right. But, yep. you know, now and again, I, I referee basketball papers, you know, mm-hmm. statistical papers when they're submitted to journals, and it is evident that they are miles ahead of wow, hockey. Interesting. And baseball, of course, is its own little its own little curiosity because the sport is so different from the others. Right. Because it has, it has a, a data history that goes back very, very far, you know, connects right. to cricket and this, in some sense, baseball has always been this place where a particular kind of statistically inclined fan has always gravitated mm-hmm. because they're so scrupulous about keeping so much data over such a long history. Yeah. But it doesn't lend itself to the same kind of techniques because it's not a continuous open play yeah. kind of game. Yeah. And whereas basketball is the one that I look to most closely mm-hmm. because it has a, has a lot of formal similarities to hockey. Yeah, where you know the the frequent substitutions, the generally open play, the the constant contest for possession mm-hmm. you know, that has the a lot of analogs, the, the restricted space compared to the number of people, mm-hmm. you know where you know you don't have that territory aspect that you have in in the NFL or the CFL, mm-hmm. and but even there, you know NFL data is is like as a culture within the sport is miles ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I found it really interesting this past season. All of a sudden, you 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 were seeing real time replays of a play, um, with you know, with the icons of each player moving, um, yep. and that and that seemed to be, I mean, even within, I, I think that that was new this past season. So just just the the growth has been kind of amazing. It would be interesting to see. If we could, uh, I mean, I just remember being a kid, like going through box scores in the physical newspaper, which maybe many uh, readers or listeners now don't know what a physical newspaper is, but like <laughs> parsing through like the box scores and just whether that's a predictor of people being interested in in data and data viz today um, in your sort of interesting Venn diagram. Um, well, I, I was one of these kids too. I, I definitely yeah. poured over the, the standings too. It's also worth noticing that despite the fact that, that hockey is really far behind, as I said, the improvements in the broader culture uh, in the last, just say, five years are enormous. Mm-hmm. The, like one of the nice things about having Twitter around is that you can see like what were people arguing about five, six years ago. Every yeah. now and again, people will come up and and every now and again, you know, even your own tweets, you think, boy, was that really where I was five I years back? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but also, it makes you realize that that as a culture, as a community, it, the improvement is enormous. Yeah. Even if we're still in fourth, I don't know if we're gaining on anybody, but like, I don't think of it as a competition. I try to think of it as is is the culture improving, uh, and ideally quickly. And I think the answer is yes in both cases. Well, it's, it is really interesting because at least here in Washington, obviously. Um, the command, the the football team, the commanders being sold, um, and the leader of the what looks to be the team that's buying the commanders, uh, the guy who's leading that, he owns a part of the Devils, uh, the New Jersey Devils hockey team, and part of the Philadelphia Sixers uh, basketball team. And so it will be really interesting. I think, I mean, obviously this is behind the scenes and whatever billionaires are able to do, but interesting to see is there sharing going on on the technical piece of these data analytics happening. I mean, he'll own parts of teams, or I don't know if he knows how much he owns of each of these teams, of three major uh, sports in North America and and how they're sharing analytics and techniques and processes and data and all that sort of thing. I, I think that's definitely going to gonna take even more hold. Uh, I know that the Cranky Sports Group has, mm-hmm. uh, has a handful of sports teams across different, different leagues. Um, I know that there's also um, another couple of groups um, like the Glazer group that owns 
a handful of teams and and some of them for sure are at least trying to build out cross-disciplinary technical teams sure. i mean and it's a lot easier said than done Oh, absolutely. But, but to your point, I mean, basketball and hockey are two great examples. I mean, they're, they're similar in, in sort of the underlying structure. And so if you have basketball data, that's real time of where everybody is on the floor at any one particular time, and you do whatever analysis and visualizations with that, and you have the same structural data for hockey, um, I would suspect that those teams can be talking to one another. Um, it's pretty yeah, interesting. And this, is, this is one of those areas where there's a lot of, right. of ability to cross over. Where yeah. you can say something like, especially because you have to deal with a, a culture in all cases mm -hmm. where you have an existing established culture that's not data driven. Yeah. And and so, you know, I was I was talking earlier about how I turned to Viz because I'm not particularly moved or convinced by um, numbers, by which I mean physically, you know, when you write numbers on a page, that doesn't translate into information in my brain easily. Mm -hmm. And Whereas people, you know, traditional owners, coaches, players of major sports are like that only 10 times as much. Mm -hmm. And so being able to put Viz in front of them where you can make a point quickly and say, look, this is how this helps us win. You know, that, that's an enormous gain. And so if you have great, great technical skills, but not a lot of visualization skills specifically, and you have someone else in a team who can help you out with that, you know, that's, this is sort of a front facing version of what you can get out of, oh, you know, I don't have any database administration abilities. And so I'm going to get a DB tech who actually works in healthcare. Mm -hmm. his, you know, I'm going to get her to come over and, and build out a system for me in sports. Right. You know, there, the technology is sufficiently generic that everybody understands, you know, if you can build a database for this, you can build a database for that. But in fact, the Viz skills are just as transferable. And, right. and so that's, I think, where some teams are going to find some traction there. Some teams of teams, if you like. Right, teams of teams. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, we've talked about your uh, the data and your process for grabbing it and cleaning it. And we've talked about the Viz. Let's talk about some hockey to wrap this up. Um, so we are now, I think... Uh, each of the second rounds were one game into each of the second round games. So where we stand today, so it's it's early May. What are your models saying right now? Who's the favorite to win uh, in both conferences? What what do you have? Uh, so all up, I favor the Carolina Hurricanes. Okay, um, they're one up in their current series, but I favored them even before the second round started. In fact, even before the first round started. Mm. Uh, and in the West Conference, uh, I prefer Dallas over all oh. the others, which is a slightly unusual choice. In fact, both of them are yeah. a little bit unusual. Yeah. Uh, the Hurricanes especially have a very unusual style. Um, the most important thing is to shoot the puck well, and that's what they do not do. Mm -hmm. They do all of the other things extremely well. Right. They just have the puck all the time, and yeah. they're very good at turning it into shots. And uh, and the goal is to sort of come out eventually on the side. <laughs> right. Like uh, Like if you press enough olives, you'll get certain amount of oil leaking out the side of the tank yeah what about dallas I'm, I'm i'm curious about dallas so dallas is a is a more conventional construction actually um but there's something about being in the southern part of the united states and also being out west you know west is here relative to you know right, eastern yeah. time yeah yeah uh, and well and of course west is a, is a question of when you play and they do play late at night to the chagrin of a lot of local fans actually yeah but the, that somehow manages to make you fly under some radar a little bit huh. um and and they have a, a fairly devoted but quite small fan base mm -hmm. so that also you know teams which have big fan bases like the leafs you know you can't they can't do anything you can't change the sheets on the bed in a hotel without people making a big <laughs> deal about it 
Right. Whereas, you know, however relevant it might be, whereas in Dallas, you can assemble an extremely strong roster and have only a handful of people noted. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, interesting. Uh, well, so one of the greatest examples is um, their best forward, Jason Robertson, is, I think, very nearly as good as somebody like McDavid, mm -hmm. who, who has an incredibly high profile. Right. And I mean, very deservedly so. He's one of the best to ever play the game. But Robertson is, is only a little bit off, and yet people don't think of him as even remotely comparable. And, and the market, so that's just one player. You know, they have a whole stable of great players, but they're much more traditional. You know, they have a great goalie. They have mm -hmm. great team defense. They have a handful of good shooters. Yeah, so that's that's sort of the, the standard blueprint, but um, but somehow people didn't notice them doing it. Yeah, so so I'm curious about McDavid. I mean, I uh, my caps are out, so but I'm kind of rooting for Edmonton primarily because I just like watching him play. Um, so kind of a two parter. So so one, why doesn't Edmonton go further every year with? Drysidle and McDavid, I just feel like they would go further every year. And yet, they, is it just like a playoff problem? Like, what, 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 what is it? I don't think it's a playoff problem specifically. I do think it's a, a dysfunction in the team as a management structure problem, mm. uh, where they've been unable to surround those two with the depth that mm. is required um, because of their previous bad decisions. Right. So they they here actually covers more people than just the current managers. Yeah. Uh, because because you can have these decisions where you you know in a hard cap you commit to a particular player for a really long time and then even if you buy them out the buyout itself leaves marks and and the, the shadows can be cast for a really long time. Yeah. So you and if you have poor management choices like that you can hamstring even the very best players. Part of it too, of course, is that it it's. You know, we were talking about the one of the differences in analytics between hockey and the other major sports. You also have differences in the game structure itself, where mm -hmm. where individual brilliance uh, does not count for as much right. in hockey as it does in all of the other sports. Mm -hmm. Where you know, in the the position structure in football is so incredibly disparate, where you know, you need to have a quarterback of a particular quality in order to go a particular distance. And if you do, you probably will, even if your other players are only so-so. Yeah. And there, there's no analog to that in hockey. Even goalie, mm -hmm. which is the closest you can get, just doesn't have that same amount of leverage. Yeah. And then yeah. basketball, which of course has no, is much, much flatter positional structure. Mm -hmm. You know, all five, even though there's, there's technical there's positions, of course, but, but the difference between the five different positions on the, on the court are so small. Right, minuscule compared to NFL. Yeah, uh, yeah. But there, the time pattern is so different, where the best players play such an incredibly large fraction of the game. Mm -hmm. But in hockey, they you just can't. right, you just you, can't you go yeah. so fast. You no no humans, no matter how how Herculean, have the oxygen to supply their muscles right to skate like that for and you know much longer than they are already skating. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, really limits how much you can do. Like McDavid is, is a physical freak. He can play for 30 minutes a night. That's still only half the game. Right, right, and, right. And so you can't, you know, you just cannot squeeze a single player, or in this case, two incredible players, for that much. Yeah, yeah. I had the, I was fortunate enough to be able to see Edmonton here in D.C. in November uh, one of the rare games where we won. And I mean, just watching McDavid play is just, is just a wonder. I mean, 
he is he is incredible um, he's confounding statistically yeah, he's yeah you know he's one of these players who's so good where where you look at you know at, at outputs of graphs and think well i did that wrong and then you you know you go back and you look and you say no i just have to move those axes he, yeah he just, like, <laughs> yeah do you think he is the right now the or one of the most? I mean, certainly one of. Do you think he's he is the most dominant individual athlete in a team sport in in let's say north of the, of the big four we've been talking about? I I know so little about the specific identities of anybody else who could be. Yeah. Like if it's not him, who might it be? And I I don't you know have the list on my fingertips of who it could be. Yeah. I I feel like structurally the the constraints we were talking about before mean that that he can't be mm-hmm. somehow just because yeah. he's a hockey player that that no hockey player you know sort of like zeus himself on skates right could ever have that kind of role yeah and i you know i, I get the there's something very pure about just saying you know i love watching this guy play because it's great and there's plenty of players who i have loved in the same sort of way again yeah. carlson has has occupied a, a similar mm-hmm. kind of position mentally and spiritually for a lot of senators fans and then sharks fans over the years yeah but this year in particular they were the sharks as a team were dreadful and yeah there's plenty of sharks fans who say well you know it was all still worth it because i got to watch eric carlson have a historic season right and right and you know but but that's that's understood that you can have a player doing titanic things and still lose yes in fact it's reasonably common and certainly you watched ovechkin Yep. Take better. I mean, obviously he got that one cup with that one team, but he took better teams. Yeah. Uh, considerably shorter distances into the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, president, president, the president's trophy curse, right? I mean, it's, we saw it this year. Um, well, it, yeah. you don't, you know, nothing is promised. Nothing is written. as they <laughs> Right. Say. Right. Um, so I want to ask two more. Uh, uh, you already mentioned, I was going to ask you who the most underrated offensive player is. I think you said, I think, is Robertson Robertson would be your guy? Yeah, I think so. I try not yeah. to talk too much about underrated and overrated because it gets a little snipey about you know who knows stuff and who doesn't. Oh know. yeah, sure, but, sure, sure, sure. But I try and I try and think about it in the sense of like you know do I have like a a bottle of wine that's really good and it's only eighteen bucks and I can yeah. not only give you a glass but I can say oh by the way it's only eighteen bucks and then you will enjoy how great <laughs> right, and how cheap. Right. You know, that's that's sort of I try to take it in this positive spirit if I can. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me uh, rephrase then my last question for you. Which team that's not in the playoffs this year do you think has the brightest future in the next couple of years? I think Ottawa certainly tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, the Buffalo, I think, also looks really bright. Yep. They, uh, they've, they've acquired a number of, both of those teams have a number of extremely good yeah. players who are not just coming into their prime, but still a couple of years off it, you know, where you say, if you're this good now at, at 21, at 22, what are you going to yeah. be like when you're 23, 24? Um, those are the two that, that really stick out. Yep. Um, yeah. And of uh, course, it's part of the fun is that both of those teams are together, and they, and they both just missed the playoffs this year. Right. And and they're they're together in the same division. Yeah. And the their division is at least this year was the strongest one in the sport. Mm-hmm. So so even if they do improve the way that I expect, they both will. It's going to be a night fight. Uh, just to even make the playoffs. And in fact, probably one or both of them are going to lose in the first round of the playoff just because they might have to play one another. Right. So it's right. going to be, that's right. It's part of, part of what the, fun. the whole business fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but absolutely. also kind of nerve wracking. It's, it's quite possible <laughs> to be, you know, to have a dominant season and to simply have to play your best opponent right away. Right away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Micah, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, and I'll look forward to, 
seeing where we end up in the next uh, next few weeks over the playoffs. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. And thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you'll check out Micah's website and learn a lot about hockey. And I hope you're enjoying the hockey playoffs, of course. And if you haven't yet checked out my new book, Data Visualization in Excel, it is available on Amazon at the Rootledge Publisher site and wherever you get your books. It's a step-by-step guide of how to create more than 20 different non-standard graphs in Excel from heat maps to mosaic charts to strip plots and rain cloud plots and dot plots and slope charts. So I hope you'll check it out. Let me know what you think. There are downloadable Excel files that go along with it that you can use in your own work. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the show. I hope you're enjoying the NHL playoffs. And so until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsky Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy Viz Podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.